Tom and Dave. I think I bumped the phone. In a world entrenched in darkness, desperately seeking hope and security, a coalition of nations invoke a highly classified program, commissioned by their ancestors generations ago, for such a time when all else has failed. They called for but one man to light the flame, to carry the torch, which is really a guitar, ready to blast the battle cry. Behold, the time has come for... Rock and Roll! I will get you all caught up. Trust me, it's what I do. Yes, yeah, the podcast was mentioned in some newspaper articles, and uh, which was a surprise, really. We, we will get into all of that, all talking about some uh, personal news, a career change coming up. Uh, you may have seen some things on social media that I put out there over the last couple of days. We'll talk about all of that in moments. Also, of course, talking about the 25th anniversary of the Queensryche album, Promised Land, one of my favorite records, a unique production on it. Um, very different for the 90s and a lot of bands a lot of musicians had to change their style or just did change their style in the 90s everything had changed by that point and of course we're talking about some great rock band logos in a new series looking at great logos how they become iconic how they were made we're going to talk about the ACDC logo we're going to talk about Van Halen and Kiss you know I've got to talk about Van Halen and Kiss right just the, the logo and how significant those logos are and and iconic. So um, all of that coming up in a very exciting, fun-filled Rock of Nations with Dave Kinchin podcast. Uh, thank you all so much for joining us here. Uh, yeah, looking at the Philadelphia Inquirer uh, here. Actually, this was a later copy I got, so I didn't see the... I know the article's online, uh, on the online version, but um, yes, so uh, some people were, were uh, kind of surprised to see the podcast mentioned in, in um, some of the, the papers. And... Um, it's it, it, the story wasn't really so much about the the podcast. I I um I will be changing uh, careers, and that was kind of the a little little story. I, I wasn't even expecting them to write about it, so it was a nice little thing that they put together um, in the Philadelphia Inquirer and Philadelphia Philly Voice. I think also picked it up too and wrote their own story. But um, most of you know I'm a news reporter in Philadelphia. I've been working uh, in TV news in Philadelphia for eight wonderful years. We just had our anniversary on. August, uh, August, what am I talking about? October 3rd, October 3rd. It feels like August. You know what? I know why I said that. Just a few days ago, it sort of felt like August. Now it feels like October, you know. It, it, it's some wacky weather, yeah. W the weather is a news story. And <laughs> But anyway, um, so uh, I, I've had this great honor of being a, a broadcast journalist uh, since 2004. Um, and what I did was go from working in uh, Michigan, a couple stations in Michigan, came to Philadelphia eight years ago and covered all kinds of things, big stories, you know, some really sad stories and some really great stories. You know, we got to do some political coverage. We got to, got to do some uh, sports coverage and even music cover music, too, you know, and, and that's kind of what led up to the podcast here. Um and the other show that we do periodically, Dave Kinchin tonight, which uh, it's it, we, really periodically, it's been a while since we've done it. Um, 
you know, in part because we do a lot of news reporting and talk about the news as we're reporting it, you know, or, you know, just social media has kind of become more of a place to go for a lot of that stuff where we just try to, you know, we provide analysis, not commentary, but analysis on things, you know, um, and analysis in music too. And I think we've just been, we've definitely been focusing a lot on this show and this program too. Um, so anyway, what happened was, um, the, so I, I, after eight years of working, uh, in Philadelphia television news, uh, I saw an opportunity to really look at dealing with a lot of the challenges that are going on in our community. A lot of the, you know, the violence and things like that, the crime. And there was a position that opened up to handle communications for the city of Philadelphia on that, you know, there's a particular office that deals with that. And so I did, uh, threw my hat in the ring and was honored to do some interviews and, um, you know, was just so excited when I got the call to, to, uh, to come up and join the team there. Uh, so I'll be handling, I'll be doing some communications work for um, the city of Philadelphia on those uh, issues. And so I just put a little thing out on um, social media, you know, and it's, it's always kind of funny when you do that. or a little strange because you, you just want to let people know that, you know, within a certain amount of time, they won't be able to see you anymore in the news, you know. Um, so we put something out on Facebook. Uh, gosh, this week is kind of run together. Was it Wednesday? Uh, it was anyway, I think it was midweek. Actually, you know what? It was earlier in the week. And then we, we put something up on Twitter too. And the response I got from the community was great. You know, coworkers over at uh, the station and, uh, uh, you know, over at, um, Fox and then also just community, community leaders, communications people. I'll be working with, you know, people, various stakeholders. And uh, so the Philadelphia Inquirer picked it up and uh, picked up the story and did a thing on it, uh, you know, I, taking the social media post that I made also. Just, uh, I think they looked at, you know, just uh, some of the work that, that uh, we've done or that I've been able to do there and uh, that I've been great, blessed to do, you know. And uh, just talked about really, I guess they kind of, they just really took what I wrote as the quotes for the, the story, uh, what I wrote on social media. And they mentioned, uh, you know, some of the things I've also been involved with, including the podcasts. So, you know, there's Dave Kinchin tonight, which is a periodic show uh, that we do. And uh, we've obviously done more of this show in, uh, over the summer, um, just because uh, when you, there's a lot of news involvement we have. The Dave Kinchin Tonight Show is very news-focused, and there's a lot of news that we do just in reporting a lot of the stories that we, we've been working on. So we haven't um, done that show. We're going to, you know, that show's out there, and, and there's some good episodes that we did this year. We revamped that show. We stopped doing it years ago uh, when we came to Philadelphia just to for a change of pace, but uh, started it up in a different form, podcast form. But that really gave birth to this show it was it was we were going to try to mix a um, news program uh news program with a music entertainment show you know in fact the first show we did when we relaunched it was Kinchin Gonzalez tonight way back when my friend Nick was a, a co-host and you know we did that back in the like from 2000 2007 to 2011 and so when we started up Dave Kinchin tonight, um, I think the, we were talking about, I can't, I can't even remember the issue we were talking about, but we, the second half of the show was an interview I did with David Coverdale of Whitesnake, because we thought, you know, news, sports, and culture was kind of the theme of the first show we did, and then we said, well, let's do something, um, 
you know, let's, if you watch a newscast, you know, you have the harder news in the, in the top of the show, like the, the, the bigger stories at the beginning of it, you know, the crime, the, the politics, the, you know, all of that stuff. And then you have, uh, as you, you know, you have your weather and then your sports, and then you kind of get to the lighter, you know, the second half of the show after the first commercial break is kind of the, the lighter stuff you might get into entertainment. So we kind of, we modeled the show that way where we would talk about some of the more serious news issues and then go into some of the the fun stuff that, that's out there, or at least entertainment, arts. And I, I love art and entertainment, um, even though I love a good, heavy-sounding guitar. <laughs> you know, I also like the blues and jazz, and, and this show kind of came out of that. You know, we said, why don't we just do a separate show talking about all of that stuff? And it's great. It's become, you know, my favorite hobby. And uh, so I was surprised... Um, uh, to see the article and, and to know that they, because uh, it, it wasn't really an interview thing. It was just more of a, uh, you know, it, 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 it's there's a section of newspapers that kind of cover local news and just local happenings around town. So it was that type of thing. So it was it was very nice for them to do. Um, the the writer I met uh, a long time ago uh, on a different story, a very nice uh, guy, and um, you know. He did that story, and then uh, Philly Voice, which is uh, more of an online publication in Philadelphia, uh, I believe. I think I, uh, pretty sure I, I've always seen them mostly online. But anyway, uh, they did the um, a piece too, and, and kind of picked it up. And then the TV news blogs that that follow uh, the, the industry, though. Anytime somebody leaves a station to go to another station, or a newcomer comes into the business, you know, they just it's an industry publication. You know, like any other industry, I'm sure engineers have. Uh, publications like that, um, you know, writers, screenwriters, uh, whatever it may be, financial magazines, you, you get the idea. So um, we we started, uh, I just noticed a, maybe a bit of an increase in some of the, the hits we were getting on the show, and, and I said, oh, it must be because of the, the piece that was written about, but uh, yeah, it was it was, a, play, it was a, a, a pleasant surprise is what I'm trying to say. Um, so for those who are discovering, uh, you know, our music program here, uh, you know, for the first time, thank you so much for, for doing that. And it's, it's just great to, um, uh, to be able to share that news with you and, uh, you know, uh, to talk about music and, and talk about, you know, the, the groups we love and, and things like that. You know, it's, uh, um, the funny thing about it is the last two years, we just started doing more, uh, music news. You know, the funny thing, I'm looking at the, the hardcover of uh, the, the Philadelphia Inquirer, and there's a big spread. Hang on, it's in the life section. Let me see, huh? Natural sound, right? Gotta love some natural sound as we flip through the paper. But there was a big spread. Of course, I can't find it now. There was a big spread on um, Greta Van Fleet for the entertainment section of uh, you know bands coming in to town. So I was really happy to see those guys because you know we got to interview them a couple years ago uh, when they came through to Philadelphia on the. Um, Rock of Allegiance tour, I believe it was. So we got to talk to those guys. They had just they just had that big one highway song, uh, and um, you know that had like it was it was on the the Billboard uh, rock chart. It it had like five million views on YouTube, and obviously uh, the singer sounds just like Robert Plant, and and the guitar playing is very gritty like Led Zeppelin. So they're even bigger now. They have a, a great record uh, that they're. Um, producing and putting together and uh, they're coming to Philadelphia soon so that's why I think they were in the paper but you know it was at that moment about two years ago we started talking more about rock music or just music in general we interviewed David Coverdale for a tour he was doing with White Snake and the new record they have coming out uh, the Flesh and Blood album 
uh, Paul Stanley came by the station to talk about artwork, so we did an interview uh, to talk about his artwork in the Wentworth Galleries, and uh, same thing with uh, Rick Allen of Def Leppard, and so it's just an amazing thing to be able to, in the last two years, you know, not just cover politics and, and sports and, and art and all kinds of things, but rock and roll music, and, and I think all of that kind of went into, hey, let's do a podcast too, you know, so I guess it all somewhere comes together, and it's been a a really cool thing. It's just been a treat, you know. It's not, it's, we talk about everything here, you know. Uh, Nathan East, uh, Eric Clapton's bassist of 40 years, almost 40 years, uh, was wonderful enough to do the program. Martin Page, uh, who co wrote some big hits in the 80s and had uh, In the House of Stone and Light, the big one that he did, and some beautiful acoustic works and, and just some wonderful uh, atmospheric music. Uh, uh, Klaus Mana of Scorpions, and, uh, you know, just on and on. Desmond Child. Uh, which I just saw, he posted the, our interview that we did with him on his website, and just a lovely guy, Desmond Child, such a lovely guy, co-writing the hits with, uh, you know, Ricky Martin, Living La Vida Loca, Bon Jovi, um, uh, you know, of course, Living on a Prayer, and uh, You Give Love a Bad Name, and uh, starting out with uh, I Was Made for Loving You in the 70s with, uh, uh, Paul, uh, with Paul Stanley writing that uh, for Kiss, and then to also talk to Anton Fig, the drummer who played on that record, you know, it just—it's been really cool. Everything's kind of come full circle. So anyway, uh, just—it's uh, been a celebration. It's been wonderful to do all of that uh, as we come to you on a busy Friday night here, when uh, the town is uh, feeling festive and there's folks out and about in Old City outside of our Old City studios um, and doing their thing. Uh, we are having our own celebration and doing our thing, and it's just been a great joy to do this show for you and. Uh, continue doing it for you and uh, talking about great rock and roll and just great music in general, blues, pop, all of that. So coming back after a quick word uh, with all the social media accounts, uh, we'll just run through those in a second uh, and uh, where you can interact with us. And we will talk more about Queensryche's Promised Land and, of course, great rock and roll logos. Hello, friends. Thank you so much for checking out this program. If you want to know more about this show or your host, you can check out DaveKinchin.com for all of the information. Also, find us on social media, Dave Kinchin USA, on Twitter, on Facebook, Rock of Nations with Dave Kinchin. And for the Dave Kinchin Tonight Public Affairs Program, just search Dave Kinchin Tonight on Facebook. Oh, yeah. Time flies, doesn't it? It really does. So we're talking about the 25th anniversary of the album Promised Land by Queensryche. Now, they just had the massive success that was Empire in 1990. a diverse record, very commercial in production, Silent Lucidity, the biggest song off that record, the biggest song of their career, without any doubt. Empire, the title track, kind of went back into what the band would talk about in terms of social matters, um, creative production. There was a lot of creative production on this album. You hear, you hear different vocal effects and sounds and Silent Lucidity, but it was also... Um, Songs like uh, uh, The Thin Line and, of course, uh, Best I Can that had kind of an inspirational message there. You know, you have a, a, a person in a wheelchair determined to live um, the best life they can and despite uh, an unfortunate situation they were going through medically. Again, I'm, this is an interpretation 
of the song and um, you know it, 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 there's there's a lot of um, various things, emotions happening on this record. The, you know, Jet City Woman, a very a, a tribute to their city, uh, a, a song that's um, romantic, I think, in terms of what I hear from it. Uh, and then also uh, another rainy night without you, which is uh, just probably the most. Um, I mean, it's it's definitely unlike anything they did. Uh, in 84 and 86, completely different, completely different. So, uh, but that worked for them at the time. And that was also before grunge. Okay, now keep in mind that Queensryche is from Seattle. So by the early 90s, you have grunge that takes over. You have the Pearl Jams, the Nirvanas, all these bands that um, weren't always writing about particularly happy subjects, right? And uh, Queensryche took a different turn in 1994 and certainly bands will pay attention to the way the music scene, where the music scene goes and what's happening, uh, what people are listening to. But you, as an artist, um, as an artist, I can tell you, no, certainly not saying this from my perspective, but artists certainly embrace their creativity and they want to grow and become prolific and, and uh, expand, you know. Um, the joke is that ACDC would put out the same record all the time. The guys in the band would say that, you know, we, we put out the same record, we just put a different cover on it. But even ACDC, who has a, a, a um, very similar sound in every single track, almost every single record, they do evolve. It's in there. You have to listen for it, but it's in there. So what I'm saying is every artist does evolve. Every artist does grow. Every artist does do something different. So... This album, Promised Land, is very psychological. It has a lot of different textures to it in terms of the sound, in terms of the theme, and all of those things. Now, musically, uh, there's saxophone in it. Jeff Tate plays saxophone. There's saxophone in the record. Now, this is something that would be unheard of if you're talking about, uh, you know, the Warning or any of their early, the Queensryche EP, the earlier records, you would not think about that at all. His voice is also not as operatic in this one. You start to sense some vocal changes, maybe by choice, although I think later on it became clear that Jeff Tate was not seemingly able to hit those really high notes that he did on um, Mind Crime, on, uh, you know, Warning, Rage for Order, you know, even, even Empire. Just there, there seemed to be a change there. You have the natural sounds uh, of um, like a, the track leading up to, I think it's Disconnected, you have uh, some sounds that are very, you know, like f shoes walking through a city and trains and cars and sirens and, and all of that. Um, the song Bridge deals with, um, and again, I, I've never heard the stories behind these, these songs in terms of interviews, but uh, it does appear, you know, just lyrically, you're talking about a child that grew up with a very uh, strained, difficult relationship with his father. On that song, you have um, on the track I Am I, very much a song dealing with identity. Um, Promised Land, the title, you know, they did a performance in, the, in 1994 where Jeff was at a bar and basically uh, going over the, very, the various difficulties and uh, failures of the life of the character. Uh, that he's talking about so and, and the music for that song is very moody the bass uh, guitar it, it does something that I've never heard before 
and then Scott's drums just come in with great thunder. Such an underrated song, you know, such an underrated song, the title track from that record. But they all come in at a time when music was totally different. Now, I found this gem from Loudwire. Um, I always like it when magazines capture what I'm feeling about an album or observations. So I kind of made some notes about my thoughts, which I just shared for you there, um, some of them. And then I, I started to look to see what I could find, what other people were saying about the record. And I found this article from October 8th, October 17th, 2015, so just a few years ago. Uh, and this was on the 20... Uh, well, it wasn't really... The timing's a little... I think, you know what it is? They, it's a reprint of a, a previous piece, is what it looks like. So anyway, uh, they talk about Promised Land and the album's legacy, so... Um, Jeff Cornell's the writer uh, for Loudwire.com here. Queen, Queensryche released their fifth album, Promised Land, on October 18th, 1994. The effort arrived in a much different musical landscape than its predecessor, the group's 1990 landmark album, Empire. By 1994, the band's hometown of Seattle had spawned, spawned a grunge musical revolution with the likes of Nirvana, Soundgarden, and Pearl Jam, leading the rock airwaves and charts. Also, by the way, creating more alternative rock stations. I mean, after those groups came out, you had more alternative rock stations around the country, too. Um, while the popularity of grunge didn't affect the sounds on Queen, Queensryche's fifth album, Promised Land, it did have a profound influence on the band's 1997 Here in the Now Frontier. That was the last one that Chris DeGarmo did with the band. He had decided to move on. He became a, a commercial, I think a private and commercial pilot. Um, you know, so it had pretty much went the other way um he was flying jets i guess in with the song jet city woman he said you know i really want to fly jets <laughs> and he did um uh no i wasn't really going for a joke there but i guess it works and it's not a joke making fun it's it's a it's a joke and it's a tribute joke is there such thing as something like that <laughs> yeah the producer says go on with the article i am going on with the article you see, this is why we don't give the... Yet again, your your lovable host here is razzed by our producer who we, we refuse to give a microphone to because I take the hits here. It's my job to take the hits from our producer who is always trying to, uh, well, you know, throw me off track, but it's not going to happen. It's a daily battle that I fight, not today. Uh, while Promised Land, Loudwire continues here. While Promised Land is a fan favorite and arguably the original lineup's last great album. It was completely overshadowed by the tremendous commercial success of Queensryche's 1994 album, Empire. However, Promised Land remains the highest charting Queensryche effort, debuting at number three on the Billboard 200, but the disc didn't have the legs of the band's prior effort and quickly fell off uh, the tally. Promised Land features the band returning to their conceptual roots. Among the album's themes are life, death, success, and how American society shapes our goals. Singer Jeff Tate said the album is all about going after the brass ring. Uh, the you know, and the, the title track talks about never finding my promised land. You know, and the struggles and things of that sort. Uh, the album was written in a tumultuous time for the band following the success of Empire. Queensryche had huge expectations looming, and that weighed on the band. Tate told us in an exclusive interview that Promised Land is one of his favorite records. He also shined a light on the process of putting together the effort. 
quote, it was an incredibly difficult time when that was recorded, having experienced the world from the Empire album and the commercial success of that record and the massive amount of touring. That kind of stuff has a tendency to really change your outlook on things. And it definitely did that for me, actually made me more introspective, you know. Tate added, quote, it made me question what life was all about and what my life was about and what I was doing and adjusting to a completely different way of living, you know. So that album really came from that time of introspection and it really, it's really a great piece of art because it reflects that it didn't uh, deviate out of the mood too much. He says, even though the music is fairly varied, it still has this overall feeling of questioning and self-contemplation, you know, which I am r really happy about the effect that album has has. Uh, I'm glad that people embrace that record. That's one of the ones I'm most proud of. You can hear the introspection uh, on the title track, Promised Land, the centerpiece of the album. The nearly eight-minute slow droning track features a seductive saxophone solo and atmospheric bar sounds as the character in the song contemplates his life. Again, you know, there's a scene where he's doing that on stage. It's a video. I saw somebody, I guess, what did video cameras look like in 1994? Did they look like bazookas? You know, I mean, you go to a concert now, you have your cell phone, right? But back in 94, maybe, okay, maybe, maybe, uh, maybe the size of a rocket launcher, okay? <laughs> you know, and I guess you can get those into concerts. Well, well, somebody did. Somebody actually, you know, it's amazing. When you say I've seen concert footage from 1988, 1987, and it's not professionally shot video so somebody has a, a camcorder i guess or something right but uh and, and you can tell the video is a little bit old there's probably some tracking going on in the tape you know how your vcr would say tracking when the video is not that great and, and it's uploaded to youtube so it has that that ancient quality uh to it anyhow <laughs> no the story behind that is it was a funny comment i i saw a video i think it was a uh it was a Paul Stanley solo song. It was something from the 80s, and it was amateur footage, and somebody said, well, that, that camera must have been the size of a bazooka. <laughs> you know, like a mainframe computer. <laughs> you have your MacBook now, but you have your mainframe computer. <laughs> yes, we're going on with the article. Thank you very much. Um, so you can hear the introspection on the title track, Promised Land, the centerpiece of the album, nearly the nearly eight-minute Slow droning track features a seductive saxophone solo and atmospheric bar sounds as the character in the song contemplates his life. It is also apparent on the album's final song, Somewhere Else, which there are two versions. There's a beautiful piano version as well, and then there's a, a version that's a bit heavier too. Uh, the album features two amazingly high-energy rock songs, I Am I and Damaged. I Am I was written by Chris DeGarmo and Tate and features an Eastern-themed riff uh, in the song... Um, uh, Eastern-themed riff in the song was played by DeGarmo on the guitar, uh, also sitar and um, the cello. The song contains the band's signature digital sound effects and dialogue in the background, uh, which you hear a lot on Mindcrime, you hear a lot on Silent Lucidity and um, Empire, the title track too. The anthemic uh, rocker Damaged features heavy guitar work from DeGarmo and Michael Wilton. They call him Whip, by the way. Um, I think because of the way he whips his fingers around the neck of that guitar or the fretboard. Uh, DeGarmo and Michael Wilton, as well as an amazing vocal performance from Tate, who used the studio to its full potential, creating beautiful and haunting vocal harmonies throughout the entire song. The effort also features um, the two acoustic-based 
DeGarmo songs, Out of Mind, uh, the off-time ballad that tells the story of mental illness, and Bridge, uh, which was written following his father's death. Promised Land also features uh, standout deep cuts, including Disconnected, Lady Jane, and My Global Mind, and One More Time, which features stellar harmony guitar work from DeGarmo and Wilton. Uh, Queensryche launched a huge tour to support Promised Land performing at amphitheaters. The show featured a theater-like performance of the album's title track each night. Tate wore a wireless headset and sat at a bar on stage. So again, you know, we're getting into that, that picture too. On stage while singing the song with fans and contest winners playing extras. Tate recalled performing the song in concert and how it varied every night. Quote, we had all these people on stage, um, uh, were contestant winners, contest winners from all the various uh, radio station contests. So uh, they were people from the fan club that won the experience to be up on stage. Uh, so we never knew what they were going to do. You bring people up on a big stage like that and strange things begin happening. Some people are very introverted and insecure about it all and other people are extroverts and they start doing things. I remember um, a couple got up and started dancing. Somebody asked someone to get married at that point in the show. I mean, all kinds of weird things happen. The singer concluded, it was always interesting, it was a live experience, and that was unplanned and unstructured where everybody ad-libs, and that's definitely what it was, an ad-lib theater piece, he laughs. So following the Promised Land tour, Queensryche's popularity waned, even among metal fans. Michael Wilton recently said, you get people uh, that haven't seen the band since Promised Land, and you get people that haven't seen the band since the first Mindcrime tour, and they're going, we thought you disappeared. Do you, uh, did you put out any other albums? Uh, laughs. He continued, it's a never-ending situation that we're meeting, and now people are bringing their kids, and it's like, oh yeah, so glad you're back. Tate said, we never uh, were a band that appealed to a mass audience very much. We were kind of an eclectic music. Uh, we were kind of an eclectic eclectic music that appealed to a certain kind of person and not really meant for mass consumption. Promised Land uh, closes a chapter of sorts for the band. The group would release the grunge uh, influence here in the Now Frontier in 1997. The effort failed to make any waves even among their dedicated fans. Founding guitarist DeGarmo left the band shortly thereafter, leaving most fans to look back at Queensryche's first five albums uh, as their glory days. Um, I, I sort of remember I mean, I remember some tracks. I was a kid, of course, when it came out. Um, but over the years, I seem to remember coming up with reviews or finding reviews that, that were mixed on the record. You know, that even by that point, people wanted, they wanted another Empire, certainly, or they wanted another uh, Mind Crime or something. Um, even Metallica went from their heavy years in the 80s to, and the Black Album to kind of a hard rock sound with the loads, you know, load and reload. So, you know, bands evolve, bands do change, but it's still one of my favorite records and uh, something that you just, uh, you gotta check out. I would recommend uh, listening to Promised Land, the title track. I would also recommend, I think my favorite song on there is honestly Disconnected. It's very different. There's just a lot of different atmospheres to it. The video for it's pretty cool too. It rocks, my friends. All right, so moving on to great rock and roll logos. Those iconic logos that have become more than just a representative of the band, 
they've become a brand and they've become the subject of just great t-shirts. I personally, we're going to talk about the ACDC logo, the Van Halen logo, and the KISS logo. I I, I have some version of all of those and, and really who doesn't? I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's something that really is genre fluid too. There's people who like hip hop who have ACDC shirts or designs, um, you know, a, a, another logo with a similar design, you know, the lightning bolt and something else instead of AC and DC in, you know, on each side of the lightning bolt. So our friends at Ultimate Classic Rock, uh, they wrote about this years ago in 2012. Uh, the widely known ACDC logo was created by Bob Defren, um, or Defren, uh, and uh, Gerard Huerta is how I think it's pronounced. I haven't been able to find the pronunciation of the name here. With an eye towards the heavens. Now, the Gothic lettering was inspired by a font found in Gutenberg's Bible, the first book to be mass-produced thanks to the printing press. Um, now, Gerard, his intention was to create a logo that matched the biblical imagery of ACDC's song, Let There Be Rock. Now, of course, the lightning bolt and the uh, red, uh, blood-red coloring suggested the presence of less-than-angelic influences as well, of course, that's true. Uh, but the logo, you know, there's a rock form of it, like where it's in boulders, a boulder form. Uh, I think there's one where it's in a form of, uh, like, a, you know, ice. Um, you know, you have the, the ACDC and light, lightning bolt, almost as if carved from ice. That's one of the cool things, too, is that it can be something that is, um, that's born out of a, a different idea and, and applied to other forms, too. The KISS logo is like that, too. You can just put all kinds of different coloring. It's, it was done in the red, white, and blue American flag lettering. It was done in uh, pink at one point in the 80s and just all kinds of different things. Uh, silver in the early 70s on that first record. Um, of course, uh, the story of the band and, and how they uh, they got the name uh, deals with um, uh, a relative of the band there, uh, the history, and we'll go into that. Really right here, it was um, uh, Malcolm and Angus coming up, Malcolm and Angus Young, uh, the brothers, of course, coming up with the idea uh, for the band's name after their sister Margaret saw the initials ACDC on a... Um, an appliance, actually a sewing machine, and of course ACDC is an abbreviation meaning alternating current slash direct current. Um, the band felt that this name symbolized the band's raw energy, power-driven performances in their music as well. Um, of course, the band is known as uh, uh, Akadeka in Australia. I didn't realize that, uh, but that's a little right up there talking about that part of it. So, kind of a special thing. I mean, I just think it's you know. Certain logos, even the Wu-Tang logo, is now just so global. It's been like that. Um, it's just one of those things you see on people who probably don't even listen to um, to heavy rap music, you know. And uh, the Rolling Stones logo, people who don't necessarily listen to the Rolling Stones. The Rolling Stones tongue is visible everywhere. We'll talk more about that logo uh, on our next show. But... Um, uh, that's when you know you have something really, really special. And uh, it's it's not just, again, it's one of the most, of course, Back in Black is one of the greatest selling albums of all time. It's like, what, top five or top ten? The numbers change a little bit. It was Thriller. And then uh, I saw a report last year, earlier this year that said it, the Eagles, um, Eagles' greatest hits became took the number one spot. And that was always a surprise, too, because you, you understand Thriller. I mean, Michael Jackson, you understand how Thriller is that top record, but um, 
you know, those early songs, you know, just very popular, perhaps with country music and, and just uh, a lot of places. But yeah, Eagles Greatest Hits uh, was up there with, um, um, you know, Back in Black uh, by ACDC. So the album, one of the biggest albums of all time, has one of the biggest logos of all time as well. Uh, so that's always been a favorite. Uh, also, the Kiss logo. Now, this is something that Ace Frehley uh, penned in the early days. Lead guitarist Ace Frehley put this together, as we all know. Um, Paul Stanley uh, changed it a little bit and modified it. Now, the, Paul writes about this in his book, and this is kind of an interesting um, yet sensitive thing, of course. Um, you know, Paul says that the, the lettering um, was very much like the... Uh, the the SS in the Nazi the, the Nazi SS. In fact, that logo. If you look at, um, you know, you can't find the Kiss logo anywhere in Germany. Now, Paul's Jewish, and Gene Simmons is Jewish, of course. So they um, they made some modifications to the logo, um, or Paul did. Uh, it sounds like just from his book, from some of those concerns, you know, and. Uh, but it's it's a logo that the, the more updated one uh, is that that Paul came up with is the one that's that's adorned everything that is Kiss, uh, and they've used that logo uh, everywhere on albums on and as you know five thousand licensed Kiss products so it's on everything. The, the interesting thing, interesting thing about the Kiss logo is is it's not most legendary bands they don't always feature their logo in their show, you know, it, it might be on, the, it's always on the bass drum, generally the logo is on the bass drum, but like Aerosmith, you don't, I've seen them a few times in concert, you don't generally see the Aerosmith logo everywhere on the stage, you don't see the, even the Van Halen logo, it's on, you know, the, well, all, you know, 1,000 of Alex Van Halen's bass drums, uh, so I guess, you know, that's a bad example, um, I'm trying to think what else, Iron Maiden doesn't, you know, they have Eddie, but they don't have the Iron Maiden logo everywhere. Um, you have, uh, but, but with Kiss they do that, and it, you can go back to like their 70s concerts and then all the way up to everything today now, even in the 80s, the one thing that was very prominent that Kiss took off the makeup, they, they became more of a traditional rock band in the 80s without the makeup and everything else, they had the power ballads, the big songs, and the Kiss logo was still lit up in the background, and that became part of the look on stage. The logo actually became part of the band's image, you know. Uh, with the only thing at that point, now that the makeup was gone and everything else, it was just a band with a bunch of guys uh, who worked out and had long hair, you know. Uh, and, and Paul jumping around on the stage and, and obviously writing and performing some great songs. That reached a broader audience, I think, in that era. Um, and a whole new generation, too. It's, I think that, that logo uh, just sort of, it's become a symbol of Americana, just like the, um, uh, you know, the, the different designs of it with, um, with the American flag design we talked about before, um, various, you know, gold lettering, uh, I think there's a lightning effect that goes through it sometimes too, but it's also part of the makeup, which came back in 1996 when the original lineup got back together, and that's just something that's just, it's part of Americana, and, and, uh, obviously when you're talking about branding and something so big, um, you know, it's, it's on everything from lunchboxes to t-shirts, and, you know, they have, even, there's even a kiss casket, <laughs> You can be buried in a kiss casket. You you know that, right? I mean, there's so um, it's 
the logo, the, the band uh, Gene and Paul had um, an arena football team called the LA Kiss. It was the name of a, an actual football team back in, uh, well, the, the mid-2000s. Uh, they got rid of it. It didn't really work out too well, so they got rid of it a few years back. Um, but it's still part of, I think it's part of their Rock and Brews uh, restaurant business. I mean, it, you know, again, there's 5,000 licensed products of some form that have, you know, Kiss makeup on it and the guitars, the specific, you know, the Ace Frehley Les Paul, the Paul Stanley uh, mirror, broken mirror guitar, Gene's bass and his boots, and then also, of course, the... Uh, the, the logo. So yes, that logo mean is definitely the symbol of a brand. And if there is any band that is a brand, it's Kiss, of course, or Kiss, as uh, Gene Simmons would say. This is Gene Simmons from Kiss. <laughs> Craig Gass, the comedian, does a great Gene Simmons impression. <laughs> it's it's really really good. Um, but I think it also symbolizes just you know having a good time with friends and and the multi generation generations of fans who have gone to see uh, KISS concerts, you know, it's it, it's a celebration of rock and roll, um, and I think that's also what that logo represents, because when I've seen, how many times have we seen KISS? I've seen them, what's up? No, not it's not six times. Uh, no, well, hang on, 2003 was the first time we missed Ace because he retired the year before, and then there was... Um, well, I, I, five times, five times. We saw Kiss five times. And there's all kinds of people there. It's so diverse. It's a diverse crowd. Uh, culturally, it's a diverse crowd. Uh, you know, racially, all, all, all the way through. I mean, age groups and everything. And of course, Kiss is huge all around the world, you know. So it's really that it's become a great symbol of just rock and roll, a celebration of rock and roll. So you have to go with that. All right, the Van Halen logo is my favorite rock and roll logo. Um, I'm starting to see the Van Halen logo on more t-shirts and things like that. Um, because, uh, you know, and, and, and the funny thing about it is uh, it, it never really was... Uh, you know, like that in the beginning, the, you know, the, the Van Halen logo, the wings and everything, it's very edgy, it has a great design to it. Um, but, and, and it's also on their first album cover. Um, but ultimate, and this is a story I've gone back to before from Ultimate Classic Rock. Um, they just, they just think the way I think, you know, people say, you use them a lot. Uh, we talk about, we, we talk Rolling Stone, we have, you know, pieces from all over the place. They just happen to think the way I do in terms of, wow, you know, that time that Sammy Hagar opened for Kiss, that didn't go so well. Oh, you know what? They ended up writing a story about it. Or, you know, that time that uh, that Yes reemerged in the 80s with a different sound. You know what? They ended up writing about it. I'd, I'd come across these things and Google it and try to find out a little bit more about it. Next thing you know, these folks have a great uh, article on it that, that just... Uh, get you a little bit excited. So in early 78, Van Halen released their now legendary debut album. While its artwork, the four individual photos of the, um, with the band's logo in the center are now almost as recognizable as their hit songs. If they hadn't gone toe-to-toe with Warner Brothers records, the album's cover, the group's logo, and most importantly, their image would have been much different when Van Halen hit uh, record stores. Now we're talking, they're talking about Van Halen, the album, which is also known by fans as Van Halen 1. The four members of the band and their manager, uh, Marshall Burrell, met with Warner Brothers executives for the unveiling of the artwork for Van Halen, shown above um, towards the end of 1977. It's a very weird logo. It's a, it's a, 
very jagged lettering, almost Iron Maiden-like, but not quite. The V's capitalized, but everything else isn't, and it's just, you can't even read the rest of it after the, you can't really read the Halen, it's weird. Um, so they went to uh, Warner Brothers, uh, and let me see here, we just lost our place. Uh, uh, okay, so for the unveiling towards the end of 1977, uh, what the label offered up that day was a marketing disaster in the making. The proposed logo renders the name in a jagged, abrasive-looking typeface. Strangely, the cover, Alex Van Halen, is actually front and center, which is really strange and not Alec, not uh, uh, David Lee Roth. Um, bassist Michael Anthony poses next to Roth and looks like he wants to cry. Uh, to say the meeting got tense fast would be an understatement. You should see the first album cover Warner Brothers designed for us. Edward explained later to Guitar World, they tried to make us look like The Clash. We said, bleep this bleep, we'll just say. Um, still, the graphics, the graphic artist debacle, uh, graphic arts debacle uh, by Warner Brothers did not materialize out of thin air. At the time, punk rock was all the rage on the Sunset Strip, and Van Halen frequently shared stages at clubs like the Starwood and the Whiskey O'Gogo with pioneering punk and new wave acts like the Mumps, the Dogs, and the Motels. From Warner Brothers' perspective, it just made good business to sense to try to capitalize on what appeared to be the musical wave of the future by trying to convince the public that Van Halen was part of the punk movement. Ugh, what a disaster that would have been. After enduring a torrent of criticism from the Van Halen camp, Warner Brothers scrapped the proposed artwork. The label then hired photographer Elliot Gilbert to shoot the band on stage at the Whiskey. Uh, his shimmering images of Roth, Anthony, and the Van Halen brothers with their glowing trails of color made it clear that Van Halen was a live act uh, hot enough to melt rock. In the meantime, designer uh, Dave uh, B-H-A-N-G uh, Bang or Bang perhaps is how it's pronounced, drew up a new cover and created the now iconic winged Van Halen logo. Edward recalled that after uh, he showed the band the logo, the quartet quote made Warner Brothers put it on the album so that it would be clear we had nothing to do with the punk movement. It was our way of saying hey, we're just a <clears throat> Bleeping, um, <clears throat> rock and roll band, don't try and slot us with the Sex Pistols thing just because it's becoming popular. During the band's objections, despite the band's objections, the Van Halen punk rock logo did make it onto an official Van Halen release in January of 1978. Uh, with the album's street date looming, Warner Brothers had started manufacturing the now very collectible Looney Tunes red vinyl promotional uh, EP with the old logo before the band had demanded the label scrap it. In the end, though, it was uh, uh, embedded in the grooves of the album that would make it's what was embedded in the grooves of the album that would make Van Halen a legendary LP. The monster tracks running with the devil, you really got me, and yes, Atomic Punk Van Halen proceeded to sell millions and made it clear that that the metallic Van Halen was anything but a punk band, even with the song Atomic Punk. Very true. Um, uh, by the way, uh, Greg Renoff, uh, who's a Van Halen historian, he's a PhD historian, he wrote the book Van Halen Rising, How a Southern California Backyard Party Band Saved Heavy Metal. Uh, that book came out a few years ago now. He's got another book related to uh, Van Halen coming out too, so we're going to try to get him on the program too. A great insight there. Yes, I love the Van Halen logo, and it's becoming that iconic logo you're seeing everywhere. Um, uh, the store used to be Main Street. What is it now? 
Kohl's, they had a section of all these, you know, where you can get some rock and roll t-shirts. So my friend Pete and I, we were going to see Metallica and we both got some shirts and uh, and I said, you know, I got to get a Van Halen shirt. Um, I love that original logo. I, I think I have a couple shirts with that original logo. We'll talk on the next show about how they changed it when Sammy Hagar came into the band. They, they rounded out the wings a little bit and updated the VH. The center part's the same. The wings kind of go a little bit circular, indicating the band reached a full circle status when Sammy joined the band. But the Van Halen logo is coming back around, and it's becoming one of those iconic logos you see everywhere on all kinds of... of clothing and and I love it. I've seen people walking down the street. They have that logo on and I, I just I, I stop and marvel. I would say go team like it was your sports team. You know, they have the logo of your favorite team. Um, usually I just say Van Halen rocks and sometimes I get a weird stare. Then they're like, oh, yeah, that's right. They do rock. And so do we. And we will be back Monday with more talk on great rock logos. Have a great weekend, everybody. Thank you so much.